Kamal, thank you for uh, sharing your love for God's word and bearing testimony to how God can speak to us in the scriptures. Um, welcome again to First Alliance Church. We are going to continue our own journey in God's word. I invite you, if you have a Bible, pull one out, and we are going to continue in our series through Luke's gospel. And then later, once we're through Luke, we're going to just go right through into the book of Acts because it's really a two-volume uh, piece of work. And where we've come through recently in Luke is uh, through a series of, of passages where Jesus has been showing us what it means to be a disciple. What does real discipleship look like? What does it look like to be an apprentice or student of Jesus in this thing we call life? And now, as Jesus is journeying from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, we're going to see a series of conflicts. Things are going to get spicy. And so I invite you to open to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 14 to 28 this morning, and we're going to get into the first of several conflicts that Jesus runs into. If you're new to the Bible in general and you're wondering how to find your way through it, if you're using a blue Bible, you can find our passage on page 844. Always good to have the Bible open. Um, that way you can make sure I'm not making things up. Uh, you can make sure I'm, I'm sticking to this. So I invite you to do that. And we're going to read this, pray, and then we're going to explore what God wants to say to us this morning. Okay? So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But... If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Will you pray with me? 
Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, even as we've heard these Spirit-inspired words, that you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand what it is they are saying to us, what it is Jesus is saying to us. Jesus, be present here, and would we be open to you? We pray this in your name. Amen. Very simply this morning, as you were listening to that passage, you were probably wondering, okay, what's the connection? Uh, Jesus is accused, and then he goes off and says all these things. There's parables. There's an interaction with a woman. What we're going to do this morning is go through how Jesus answers his accusers. And, and in case you didn't notice, Jesus is getting flanked, okay? He, he's getting flanked on both sides. Uh, on, on one side in verse 15, he's getting flanked by critics and gossips who are, who are, you know, smearing him with accusations. On the other side, he's getting flanked with skeptics and, and sign seekers who want him to prove his authority through a miracle or a sign from heaven. And what we're going to do is focus on that first flank, if I may say, because we'll look at the second flank next Sunday. We're going to focus on the accusation that Jesus is not what he seems. There's something beneath the surface that's dark and devious. And here's their accusation. They say that Jesus is a stalking horse for Satan. Do you know what a stalking horse is? It comes from the world of hunting, which I know absolutely nothing about. I don't have a single piece of camouflaged clothing, but I've come to learn, as you look on the screen, that a stalking horse is a technique where you use a fake horse and hide behind it like a shield so that you can approach the unsuspecting geese or pheasants or ganders, whatever they are, and they're not going to be spooked. Because the thought is the animal... Uh, if they see a horse, or like, that looks like a bloated sheep. If they see another creature coming towards them, they, they won't be spooked. But there's someone behind the horse, isn't there? A stalking horse is a false pretext that hides someone's real intentions. So the false pretext is, oh, I'm just a harmless horse. The real intention is, I'm going to shoot you. And what they're saying to Jesus and, and spreading around is that behind Jesus' kindly and gracious actions, there is lurking a big bad demon ready to sink its claws into you. The source of his power is not divine, it's the devil. And the implications of what they're saying is that Jesus isn't actually freeing people, right? He's just delivered a man from a demon. Ah, but they say. He's using a greater evil to drive out a lesser evil. All he's done is brought the man from one kind of slavery into another. He's only pretending to set people free. He's bringing people out of the frying pan and into the fire. And so the question before us this morning is, is Jesus cr cruel is Jesus cruel or is he love? Is God cruel or is he love? I mean, the, the, the question and the accusation that Jesus is a stalking horse for Satan, that's not a far cry from a lot of the modern 
accusations that people have and, and the beef that people have with God, right? We live in a world that teaches us that we're oppressed and lest we have complete freedom to choose whatever will fulfill us. We live in a world that teaches us that we're oppressed unless we have complete freedom to choose whatever will fulfill us. And so people see God, if there is a God, as an oppressor. He's a tyrant. He's trying to control people through truth and morality and fear. He is the ultimate violator of people's right to self-determination. He's the one standing in the way of you doing whatever you want, whenever you want, and becoming whoever you want to be. That's how lots of people view God today. They, they see Christians and they say, oh, you think God brings you into freedom. What I see is just another form of slavery. What do we believe? Is God cruel or is he love? So how does Jesus answer his accusers? How might Jesus answer folks today who, who would say that about God? Well, let's take a look. First, he gives them a reality check. He gives them a reality check and then he confirms his identity because they're mistaken on both fronts. But first, I, I want us to have a reality check, okay? Because Jesus is talking about things that we don't often here in popular discourse today. He's talking about kingdoms and demons and devils. This is not popular stuff to talk about today. So our reality check is this, that we have an adversary. We have an adversary. Um, the, the, the word that Jesus uses here uh, to talk about Satan, it, it's not so much his proper name, it, it's a title. And the word Satan in Hebrew, Satan, means adversary or accuser. In fact, this isn't the first time we've seen this character in Luke. The first time we see him in Luke is in Luke chapter 3. Remember when Jesus went into the wilderness after he was baptized and he's tested in the wilderness for 40 days and the devil was there. The devil was there tempting him and that word devil interestingly enough, comes from the word diabolos, which means slanderer. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He, and first of all, he's the accuser of God. He is the accuser of God. He, he's whispering in our ears accusations. God isn't really good. He's really cruel. Behind that stalking horse is a God with a rifle aimed right at your chest. You need to take matters into your own hands. In the Bible, Satan is the source of sin and evil in the world. He's called the enemy, the evil one, the devil, the adversary. And it's interesting. In the first pages of the Bible, he's a snake. And in the last pages of the Bible, he's a dragon. Look at what it says in Revelation 12, 9. Oops. Okay, it's not there. Let me read it to you. The great dragon, it says in Revelation 12, 9, was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the world. Deception. That is how Satan likes to operate. Adam and Eve were deceived by the snake to open the door for sin and evil to enter the world. 
And deception is a tricky foe. And, and here's why. Uh, if you are deceived, truly, if you, are, if you are really deceived, you have no idea that you are deceived, right? That's the tricky thing with deception. The person who's deceived doesn't have a clue that they are deceived. In fact, they might even think that in a given cause, they are completely in the right, that they are even doing the will of God. So, so these people who are accusing Jesus. It's interesting to note in Mark and Matthew uh, that they reveal who these people are who are saying, Jesus, you're motivated by Satan's power. It was the religious leaders. Luke is kind enough to conceal their identities, but Mark and Matthew just don't hold back any punches. It was the religious leaders. And so these religious leaders are coming to Jesus. They're thinking they're defending God's honor. They're thinking they're defending God's laws. They're trying to keep the doctrine of Israel pure. And so they're confronting this traveling preacher. They think they're in the right. When in actual fact, they're standing against God himself. They're serving the will of the adversary. And here's what's even trickier with deception in the modern age. What we think is a strength how we've shed the superstitions of the past, right? We're scientific, we're intelligent. We don't believe in the boogeyman and all that ridiculous stuff. This perceived strength of the modern mind is one of the adversary's greatest assets. Why? Because we're not just oblivious to the fact we're deceived, we revel in it. We're proud of how reasonable we've become how refined we are in not believing in such silly things. Our reality check is this. God and God's people have an enemy. We have an enemy. And we better know it. That's our reality check. But the reality check that Jesus brings uh, to his accusers is this. He says, guys, it's just logical a divided kingdom will be ruined. A house that is divided will fall, right? If that is how Satan is operating, then his house is already falling apart, brick by brick. No, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. And what he tells them is that the reality check is there are two kingdoms and they're in a clash. There is a clash of kingdoms, and Jesus is here on the one hand, bringing the kingdom of God, and he is taking back the world for God. Look at verse 20. He says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, in other words, if my power is divine, if I'm not a stalking horse for Satan and I am here representing the God who is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Jesus wants them to see. It's interesting to note that that phrase finger of God is an intentional phrase that you, Luke is using to point us back in God's big story to a time when God rescued his people and intervened in history. It points us back to Exodus chapter eight, where God is in the midst of sending plagues on Egypt. 
in order to, to um, break Pharaoh's hard will. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He wanted to break the king of Egypt's hardness so that he would let God's people go. God is rescuing his people from slavery, and he's using a man named Moses to do it. Now, there's this scene where Pharaoh is there, and he's got all of his, like, magicians and wise men around him, his entourage, and, and Moses is there before him. And these magicians are trying to copy what Moses has been doing, right? They're like, hey, if we can, if we can do it too, then we know like we can probably defeat this guy. And so they try to copy the things that Moses has been doing and they can't. And here's their diagnosis, you know, their professional wise man diagnosis to Pharaoh. They say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, this isn't a cheap trick. This is the real deal. And Jesus is saying, if I am the real deal, if God is the source of my power, then God's kingdom has come upon you. What God has promised he would do is happening in this moment. Newsflash, he is confronting the enemy and gathering the world back under his reign. That's the reality check. There's a clash of kingdoms. God is doing it. Finally, after all this time of waiting for us to be delivered, for the kingdom of evil to be overthrown, it's happening. But notice how they still need to decide. Notice how in verse 20 he says, if, if I drive out demons by the finger of God. In other words, he lays it out before them, and he says, you still need to decide. Here's my story. Here's my version of the tale. Which version are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the stalking horse conspiracy theory? Or are you going to believe that God himself is powerfully intervening to rescue his people, just like he did in Egypt? And they need to decide. That's the kind of authority he's speaking with. He's not trying to justify himself. He's not trying to prove himself. He's saying it how it is. He says, take it or leave it. The second component of his answer uh, to his accusers is about his identity. Look at verses 21 and 23. Jesus tells a parable, and this is his version of the story, Okay. They've said, you're a stalking horse for Satan. He's like, let me tell you how it is. Verses 21 to 23, when a strong man, or sorry, 21 and 22, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. This is a statement in which we are to see Jesus talking about a strong man, read Satan, okay? The Satan. When Satan, he's got his house, fully armed, he's guarding his house. Okay, great. Verse 22, but when someone stronger, and there we read Jesus, when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. This is huge, friends. They've mistaken Jesus for a charlatan, a variety show, a dealer in cheap tricks, when in actual fact, He's God's conquering king. He's the Messiah. 
He's the stronger man who has authority and power. And guess what? He's overthrowing the strong man. That's what's happening. And he's doing it right in front of their eyes, but they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. He is really love and not cruel. He is really freeing people from bondage. He is carrying out God's rescue plan for the whole world. And I want to underline three implications uh, for us uh, that surround Jesus' identity and what he says here before we look at some more implications for our lives. The first implication is that Jesus is playing offense. Jesus is playing offense. In this clash of kingdoms, Jesus isn't hiding away in a hole. He is confidently taking ground each healing, each demon cast out, each person that he just melts with his grace and mercy, each person who turns away from sin, repents, and believe in him, each person who takes up the call to be his disciple. This is the kingdom of God gaining ground in the world. Jesus is playing offense. And we'll see later that has an impact for how we live the Christian life. The second thing I want to underline is that Jesus is victorious. Notice how in that parable of the strong man and the stronger man, it's it's like he is the stronger man and he comes and he attacks and he overpowers. He is victorious. And that means that The adversary that we encounter, the devil we encounter in our daily lives, is a defeated devil. He's defeated. Jesus has defeated him in his life and in his death on the cross. Jesus has delivered the death blow to the adversary. He's defeated and his destruction is certain. That doesn't mean we, you know, uh, we enter into the clash of kingdoms carelessly but it does mean we enter into the clash of kingdoms, whether it's, whether it's in your own heart, the clash that you feel when you know Jesus is calling you to obey him and you wanna go back into your old ways, or whether it's the clash that you meet in the world where you, where you see injustice or you're interacting with people who are dead set against the kingdom for some reason. We enter the clash from the position of already having the victory secured in Christ. This is good news. The third thing I want to underline is the greatest advantage we have in the clash. The greatest advantage we have is not our technique, right? Um, The greatest advantage we have um, when we're entering into what's sometimes called spiritual warfare is not our spiritual technique, it's not our discernment, it's not our knowledge of spiritual realities, it's not how many books I've read or seminars I've attended uh, about spiritual warfare. Our greatest advantage is the living Christ himself. Our greatest advantage is the living Christ in an unshakable confidence in his authority as king and in the victory of his cross. He is the stronger man, you and I are not but he's in us and with us by his spirit. That's our greatest advantage in the clash. Everything else is good, comes around that, but is secondary to the presence and power of the living Christ. So what? Where does this leave 
you and I. I want to talk about three things. First, that reality check, that neutrality is impossible. Second, we're seeing a call to commit. And third, we're seeing a call to mission. Look in verse 23. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever ever does not gather with me scatters. That's a very short verse. There's a lot packed in there. First, we've already mentioned the reality check. When Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, he's again just putting before us the fact that neutrality, right, to kind of take the diplomatic way in the midst of this clash of two kingdoms is not possible. In fact, what he's saying is that uh, the failure to decide is itself a decision. Not deciding is itself a decision. There's no such thing, in a sense, as casual Christianity. There's no such thing as casual Christianity. Neutrality is impossible. The second call that, that, that we're, we're getting here in verse 23 is a call to commit. It's a call to decide. Because he's saying that not deciding is itself a decision, um, this is a challenge. This is one of Jesus' brilliant uh, ways to say, hey, where, who are you with? Where are you at? And it's a way of saying, you need to decide on this. Jesus has come. He's taking the world back for God. And you can take it or leave it. But if you do leave it, if you don't come under his reign, then you're putting yourself on a collision course with God's future. When God's kingdom is going to come in its fullness and accounts are going to be settled. Does this sound serious? Yeah, it does sound serious because it is serious. And it's loving because in his love, Jesus wants to confront our unbelief and, and our tendency to sit on the fence in our attempts to dodge and evade the decision. But he confronts us because he wants us. He wants us in. He wants his enemies in. He wants his accusers in. He wants the skeptics in. He wants the critics in. He wants everyone in his kingdom. If my kids are in danger, and I have three kids, five, four, and almost two, let me tell you, with young kids in the household, it seems like their like, sudden death just looms around every corner for these kids. They're just so unaware of their surroundings, right? Completely unaware. And if I need to warn my kids, which happens almost every day, you know what I do? I put on that stern voice, right? I'll try and do it here. <laughs> That's too close to the road. Put down that piece of glass. Don't stick that piece of garbage in your mouth, right? Just stuff that, that we as grown-up people know you, you shouldn't do. I make it sound serious. Why do I do that? Because it is serious. And the need of the moment is not for my kids to feel coddled. I don't need them to feel warm and fuzzy in that moment. The need of the moment is for them to take heed and to obey. 
I need them to make a decision that will lead to life. There's lots of other times I get to enjoy intimacy and ridiculousness and affection and playfulness with my kids, but not in those serious times. That's what Jesus is doing here. Notice even with, with the outburst of the lady in verse 27. She's, she's seeing Jesus. Oh, he's so great. He's so great. She says, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you and nursed you. She's saying, oh, if only I had a son like you. And her son is standing next to her going like, come on, I'm right here, mom. But, but she's wanting to get that like warm and fuzzy moment. She, she's putting up this praise. And what does Jesus do? He kind of bursts her bubble. It's not that her praise is bad. It's that it's not the right time. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the need of the moment. That you would hear the word of God and obey it. This is serious because it is a matter of life and death. And, and let me speak into kind of the modern uh, day discourse. We think it's so um, refined to be nuanced and cunning about our spirituality, right? It's fashionable to be broad-minded. Don't commit to any single view. Never pick a hill to die on because as long as you don't commit, all the options are there for you, right? They're available for you. And I think that kind of balanced, uh, nuanced approach is good for lots of things in life. Don't get me wrong. Those of you who know me, you know I like to think out things from all angles. I like to study and learn. And that's good for a lot of things. It's good for dealing with people. It's good for learning about the world and how to be wise and skillful in life. And I would advise you to exert open-mindedness and, and moderation in lots of things in life, but not in this. Not in the matter of whether or not you belong to Jesus. Not in the matter of whether you're with him and have given him your full allegiance. In that matter, I would plead with you to a resolute decision and an absolute commitment to Jesus even if it seems intellectually unpopular or obtuse or backwards or archaic, I would urge you to an absolute commitment to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is calling for, commitment. Our indecision is a decision against him. And it shows that we haven't really come to grips with who Jesus is and what he's done. Because if we've really seen Jesus, if we've really seen his beauty, if we've really seen the glory of what he's done for us, we wouldn't put it off. We wouldn't hesitate. We would see the pearl of great worth and say, man, it's a deal that I should give everything I have to get the pearl. It's done. See, a core principle of the Christian faith. And this is how Tim Keller phrases it. A core principle of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ cannot be known apart from absolute commitment. Jesus Christ cannot be known apart from absolute commitment. You can know stuff about Jesus, but you can't know Jesus truly until you've first given yourself to him. He's only known from the inside. 
not from the outside. We've seen that earlier on in Luke when Jesus uh, gives the parable of the sower um, uh, that Jason actually referenced in his prayer about the different soils and the seed that comes. Jesus says this when he explains it to his disciples. And he's talking about why some people have ears to hear and some people don't. He's talking about why some people have eyes to see and yet are completely blind to what's right in front of them. He says to you, i.e. his committed disciples who've pressed in and they're asking him, Jesus, what does this mean? To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it's in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. He's saying that they get it and others don't because they've gotten him. They've committed themselves to him. They've given up everything to follow him. They've ventured their lives on him. That's the secret. It's not that his disciples were particularly brilliant people. In fact, we see their knuckleheads most of the time. It's because they've committed to Jesus. And when you surrender and commit to Jesus like that, things just start making sense that never used to make sense. You start to see his glory and his beauty that used to be totally hidden from you. Things start to change. You start to change your values, your view of the world and people and how you approach the difficult relationships in your life, how you view power dynamics in your life and in the world. It all changes as you sit with Jesus and grapple with his teaching and display a willingness to commit to him and a willingness to obey him. Not that you obey him all the time or perfectly that you're committed to doing it. Jesus can only be known from the inside. And all it takes is just the smallest step of faith. And Jesus can work with that to bring you in. The last book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia has this amazing chapter in it. It's called, How the Dwarves Refused to Be Taken In. And there's a scene uh, that happens, and come with me, okay? This is fantasy. You're going to have to use your imagination. We're going to get outside the world of numbers and calculations and into the world of the imaginary. There's a scene where the world is being remade, and all the main characters are standing there, you know, Lucy and Eustace and Peter, and all these kids, they're now grown up. And they're about to enter the door of the kingdom that's standing in front of them. And something curious happens. They look around. And they see on the ground a group of dwarves. And they're all huddled together. And just so you know, dwarves are like little obstinate creatures. Okay, they're really stubborn. And so they're huddled in a circle. And they are convinced that they are sitting inside of a dark, stinky stable. When in actual fact, as all the other characters can see, it's the, the sun is shining, uh, it's blue skies, they're in this beautiful field, and the door to the kingdom is literally feet away from them. But they're convinced that they are in this dark, stinky stable. And now I'm going to read. What happens is that Aslan tries to break them out uh, of of what they cannot see. He's trying to shake them out to see in reality that they are, you know, the kingdom's right there. The blue sky is shining and Aslan puts before them this beautiful feast, right? A beautiful feast of all this food. And it says that the dwarves thought they were eating and drinking 
only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had a bit of old turnip, and a third said that he had found a raw cabbage leaf. They raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. And here's what Aslan, kind of the, the God figure, the king, uh, concludes about their situation. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. They've chosen cunning instead of belief. We, we're not going to be taken in. We're not going to fall for the stocking horse. Yet their prison is in their minds and they are in that prison, so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out of that prison. The problem with these dwarves, the problem with maybe some of us, the critics and the skeptics, is that it doesn't matter what God does. It doesn't matter what God does. They've made a choice to not be taken in. They've made an absolute commitment to themselves and to their small view of the world. And that's become a prison that they don't want to be freed from. See, with Jesus, faith comes before sight. Commitment comes before understanding. We can only know Christ from the inside. And the question I want to put to you is, will we let him take us in? Will we let him take us in? The third call that I want to end with in verse 23, let's just go back, is a call to mission. Notice the second half of that verse, 23b. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now on first hearing, I think we often think, this is what I thought when I was looking into this, that this is just really echoing the first half, right? Jesus says, um, whoever uh, isn't with me is against me. But he's not, talk, he's not just saying the same thing twice. He's actually adding a component to what it means to be with him. Because what is gathered to Jesus isn't us. It's actually us who do the gathering with Jesus. That's the sense. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so what Jesus is saying is that you're actually going to enter in with me into my mission of gathering others to myself. And that's what verses 24 and 26 are all about, right? There's this parable about a house that is swept clean. And, and, and this parable is a warning to the neutral people who, who, who don't take up the call to real discipleship, right? Um, so the house is swept. And that's often what we think Christianity is about. It's about getting rid of stuff, right? It's about not doing the bad things like sin and cussing and lust. But it's about far more than that. It's not just about getting, getting rid of the bad stuff. It's about being filled to the brim with the good, it's not just about leaving, it's about receiving fullness. It's not enough to have your life swept clean by Jesus. You're not life, your life needs to be positively filled with him. Too many people sit in the pews clinging to their born-again certificates without living the born-again life. 
without being filled with Christ and his spirit. And without that fullness, what are you? You're an empty house. You're swept clean. And there's a vacancy sign over your head welcoming other greater evil into your life. Maybe you'll become a bitter Christian. Maybe you'll become jaded. Maybe you'll just fall away altogether unless you are filled. It's not a call only to be emptied of the bad, but to be filled with the good and to be sent to gather others to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, he's not saying that we all quit our jobs here and move overseas and become missionaries. He's talking about the missional nature of the Christian life. Really summarizing what Jesus is saying, guys, neutrality is not possible in this. If we don't gather others to Jesus, if we don't take up the real call to discipleship, if our lives aren't filled with the life of the living Christ and the mission of Christ, in the end, we'll scatter. In the end, we're just imposters. Jesus is no stalking horse. Contrary to what the world would say, he's not a hindrance to life and fulfillment. He's the only way to it. And following Jesus is not a move into just another form of slavery. It's to be set free encourage you to allow him to take you in this morning. Maybe for the first time that, that you would commit. Say, Jesus, I'm in. Or maybe in a deeper way, maybe because you're, you're noticing areas where you, your house has been cleared out, but it hasn't really been filled with Jesus, or you haven't wanted to take Jesus up on his word, uh, or you've been afraid what Jesus is going to do if you really let him into every part of your life. Whoa. He's going to do a renovation and transformation in you for sure. Let him take you in. Let him come in. This morning, you might be keenly aware of your own lack of conviction. You might know your track record to sit on the fence and to put it off. What I want you to see, what I want you to turn and see is King Jesus. King Jesus in his glory, in all his authority, and in all his splendor. See this king committing to you. See this king committing to you absolutely without reservation, even in the midst of all our sin, in the midst of all our dirt and flakiness and indecision. In the story of the Bible, God makes a covenant commitment to Israel in the Old Testament and they absolutely blew it. And when they do, he doesn't throw in the towel. What does he do? He makes a new covenant in his blood. He himself comes takes on our flesh, becomes one of us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he gave his life for you on a Roman cross to redeem you from slavery and bring you into life. When you come to grips with that king who's committed to you, may we also respond to him with absolute commitment of our own. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that we see you before us as the king who has authority, who is taking the world back for God and delivering us from the kingdom of evil. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes to see Jesus? Open our ears to hear his word. Set us free from deception, 
from how we've thought that following him is a burden instead of a joy and empower us for an answering commitment and obedience that Jesus Christ would be formed in us, that we might live in him to glorify you, our heavenly father. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name, amen.